welcome to On Focus, brought to you by the Focal Therapy Clinic, where we connect you with issues facing men diagnosed with prostate cancer that are little known, less understood, often avoided, or even ignored. Prostate cancer is now the most commonly diagnosed cancer amongst men in the UK, and with this somber fact comes a multitude of challenges and opportunities. I'm Claire Delmar. Joining me today is Dr. Stephen Allen, a retired consultant anesthetist and former prostate cancer patient. Stephen has a unique perspective on how men are diagnosed and treated for prostate cancer, and he shares his wisdom and experience regularly through Tackle Prostate Cancer as a patient representative and as an advisor to NICE and the National Prostate Cancer Audit. Stephen, thank you so much for joining me today. It's a great pleasure, Claire. Um, we've talked a little bit beforehand, and you know that uh, I tend to like the sound of my own voice, so that's what my wife tells me. But uh, <laughs> I am really passionate about trying to change how prostate cancer is treated and how patients are treated as well. Perhaps I'm a little bit evangelical, but I apologize for that. <laughs> we, need, we need people like you, Stephen, and, and, and that's, that I hopefully we'll be able to bring that out. So without further ado, why don't we sure. uh, start right off? And, and I guess yeah. the first question I'd like to ask, you know, is based on your experience as both a doctor and a patient, what is the good news for men with prostate cancer and what would be the bad news? Well, I think that undoubtedly the best news we've had has been multi-parametric MRI. That has to be, I don't know, the total game changer in mm -hmm. recent years. It's now possible to actually see inside the prostate, which we couldn't do. You can accurately determine the size and the position of the tumour. There's a scale to interpret aggressiveness, the PIRAD score. Mm -hmm. And just as important as having that investigation is that it's now been accepted nationally on mm -hmm. the accepted treatment pathway supported by NICE. Men should have a multi-parameter MRI now before they even have a biopsy. That's been a major, major step forward. It's also produced a lot of spin-offs, I think. Um, the ability to more accurately target biopsies of the prostate now. We can see where the needle is going, mm -hmm. which we never could do. Yeah, so the randomness is fortunately gone. Absolutely. And we can now identify patients with these small, potentially very slow growing cancers that may never need radical treatment or indeed treatment at all. Mm -hmm. And they can go into active surveillance programs and can be sensibly and accurately monitored, which, again, we couldn't do, certainly not when I was diagnosed 13 years ago. Mm -hmm. So we've also identified patients for whom radical major surgery just might not be needed, and you can use more localised treatments. Mm -hmm. That has to be good. If the treatment is as effective, but with the potential for much less side effects, Indeed. why should we be doing radical, major, major surgery? Multiparametric MRI itself has already begun to evolve, hasn't it? That, that there are techniques which are quicker to perform, simpler. There is talk of even putting those in place of screening. Yeah, I'm going to come on to that a little a little later. But yeah, um, sure. I, I think, you know, what you're saying is, is well, it's, it's certainly what, what we believe at the focal therapy clinic. But it's interesting to hear it from you who did not enjoy, you know, that advancement when you were a patient yourself. Yeah. And I've got to say, as a, a traditional dyed in the wool old man um, and an old doctor, <laughs> it, um, accepting newer techniques can be quite difficult for people. You know, we've always done it this way. Why should we change? Mm. And the reason for change is allowing men to have less side effects and to be able to go into these treatments for prostate cancer with less fear. I think fear is a great factor. 
I think we've got more sensitive investigations. In addition to, you know, your conventional um, MRI and CT, they're, they're what you might sort of just be described as static investigations. They detect changes in tissue density. They look at the anatomy, the structure, the position of the tumour, but they can't show how active it is, how yeah. fast those cells are dividing. And, and now we've got PET scanning. Mm-hmm. That's perhaps... Yeah, I, I describe that as an active scan. Mm-hmm. Not only is it showing where it is, but the cell activity, those cells of high activity, which may well indicate that there are metastases. You know, mm-hmm. if there's cell activity where there shouldn't be, then you've got to find out what that is. And mm-hmm. I think that's the huge benefits. And, mm-hmm. of course, they're so much more sensitive. We'll be picking up men with very much smaller secondaries at mm-hmm. a, a stage when they'll be easier to treat, much earlier than conventional scans could do. I hate to say this, but what about the bad news? Because that was part of my initial question to you. Much of the bad news we've known about for a long time, to be honest, but there seems to be very little in the way of change. Men are still being diagnosed too late. Mm. I sit, as you know, on the National Prostate Cancer Audit, and figures show that the time of first diagnosis Barely 50% of men have the tumour confined within the prostate capsule. Mm. Yeah. You know, that spread may be very, very localised, mm. but it is enough to have severe implications to influence your treatment options. And yeah. even worse than that, 15% of men would already have distant metastatic spread. Yeah. Do you so think the it. pandemic has influenced that? Well, the pandemic has influenced things such that Fewer men have been diagnosed, fewer men have been referred for treatment, fewer PSA tests have been done. I mean, the figures that are being banded around are things like you know, 50% reduction in referral to yeah. urologists, yeah. up to 10,000 men not being treated, either not being treated at all because they weren't referred or that their, their treatment's been delayed for whatever reason. So mm-hmm. it is bad news, but it's news that we know about. You know, yeah. People are still being told if you don't have urinary symptoms, you don't need a PSA test. Yeah. Well, how wrong that is. Yeah. And how many men have had their futures ruined by this sort of advice? We see lots of people like that who are volunteers within within our organisations. So I want to just pick up on something you said earlier about when you talked about the, you know, the precision that multiparametric MRI affords yeah. patients and how that underpins, you know, less invasive and more accurate treatments that, and this is the point, don't deliver the kinds of side effects that you have with more radical ones. So, you know, we've spoken before and and you've spoken very openly about incontinence and its impact on men post-treatment. So I guess I'm really interested in in what advice you would give to men in making choices about treatments for prostate cancer and and how you think that this particular debilitating side effect can be better managed. I vividly remember two very important days in my life, Claire. One was the day when I was told I'd got my diagnosis. Mm-hmm. The second day was when I realized I was likely to be totally incontinent of urine for the rest of my life. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I had emotions of abject despair. I felt totally alone. I openly wept for the first time. I had no idea just how important to normal life being continent was. Yeah. There, were, there was my young granddaughter proudly telling me that she was now dry at night and didn't need to wear nappies, and there was me, her grandfather, barely 60 years old. I, I still remember that day. Much of despair comes from ignorance. 
Much of the despair comes from not knowing how incontinence is produced and how it can best be managed. I didn't know how other men had coped. And because of my status as a consultant, many healthcare professionals found it very, very difficult to even talk to me about it. Mm-hmm. So, you know, an incontinence nurse was helpful, but talking to other patients in a support group, finding out how they coped was the best thing that I could have done. I took control. I made decisions for myself and had a bit of a long journey, which there's no time to go into. But I now have an artificial urinary sphincter implanted. Mm-hmm. I had no knowledge of that before my operation. It's revolutionized my life. It's changed me from being totally incontinent to being 96% continent. It's amazing. So, so what would I say to patients? Yeah. Well, firstly, discuss how you feel with everybody, okay. doctors, nurses, and especially other patients. Mm-hmm. It's difficult to know, though, when's the best time to start conversations how much information do they want and when will they take it in, particularly pre-treatment? And mm-hmm. never, never accept being told, oh, you've only got minor incontinence. Mm-hmm. However large or small your leakage is on the, the sort of standard scale medics use, if it's a problem for you, yeah. then it's important. It's a problem. Yeah. Yeah, um, absolutely. Get lots of opinions if you can, if you're considering surgery. There are lots of different treatments. Mm-hmm. It's important to get the right treatment for the right level of continence. Mm-hmm. Talk to patients who've had the same treatment as the one you are considering. I spoke to somebody, a complete stranger I'd never met before about my artificial urinary sphincter. It completely made me feel I was making the right decision. It really mm. did. And the time it takes to get treatment for incontinence is really quite distressing. I was told nobody would do anything for a year. A year. My experience now is that I've, I don't have any data that's published that gives specific timescales about when you should have surgical remedies. And yes, it does. You've got to allow plenty of time for nerves and sphincter muscles to, to recover. Mm-hmm. But that said, my personal experience speaking to men with severe incontinence like myself, after six months, you've got what you're going to end up with. So start earlier. Mm. Start making a noise at six months. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, on the NHS, it's going to take so long to get a referral. It'll be a year before they do anything anyway. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, I mean, this sort of forewarned is forearmed argument, I suppose. Well, I think so. And, you know, like I said, I can't stress enough, everybody's an individual. Yeah. It's your body. It's your problem. You make the decisions and nobody else does. Mm. I was just told I needed to wear a convene for the rest of my life. There was no way I was going to wear a flaming leg bag for yeah. the rest of my life. I um, think the, the other challenge is, you know, you mentioned the word fear earlier in the yeah. conversation. And, you know, that could be um, an incredible barrier, to say the least, in terms of, you know, taking in this information and really visualizing, you know, what life might be like. And fear, like I say, comes from lack of knowledge. Mm-hmm. I do a lot of talks on incontinence, sexual dysfunction to support groups. I am horrified at how little men know about their very basic anatomy Mm. and how their body works. Mm -hmm. If you can understand how your body works, then you can understand a bit about how it goes wrong. Yeah. If you can understand how it goes wrong, you can understand treatments that might be offered to you. And I think Mm. even more important than that, is you can understand why a treatment may not be suitable for you mm-hmm. when it's very suitable for the bloke sitting next to you. 
Yeah, exactly. I mean, you know, it takes sort of the idea of personalized medicine to a new dimension, doesn't it? Yeah, I quite agree. Quite mm. agree. So we, we, we touched earlier when we were, you know, you were talking about multiparametric MRI and how that is, you know, yep. literally you use the word revolutionized. And I, I quite agree with you. Sure. You know, again, I'm interested in your perspective as a former NHS doctor for, for many, many years. You, you've experienced firsthand how new procedures, new techniques, new technologies are adopted and implemented. I mean, how quickly do you anticipate some of the, the advancements we're seeing now in prostate cancer diagnostics and treatment being adopted? And, you know, I'd like to specifically talk a little bit about how you see, for example, screening being done through imaging techniques that are developing. Do you think yep. that's going to take off and how soon? To be honest, it's always been a bit of a mystery to me how change can sometimes come about. Drug therapy has got a fairly standard process it goes through, and then it has to go through nice and all that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. Surgical techniques, diagnostic procedures seem to be very different. And there seems to be a sort of very often the holdups in progress are not because people don't think that the, uh, the procedure is bad, good, or mm -hmm. whatever, mm -hmm. but it's very often because of financial implications. And, you know, good example of that is robotic surgery, which is <laughs> okay. yeah. incredibly expensive outlay on equipment and wasn't initially taken up very widely because of the cost, but now's the standard technique. What about screening? What about that the front end is so important? For me, I can't see any great change happening in the next I know, seven years plus. Yeah, that's a worrying thought. But, but before we, I, I ask you to just expand on that, I, I just want to pick you up on the robotic comment you made a minute ago and, sure. and how that took a while to become implemented, but then it became, as you say, a standard of care. Now, there are some people who would feel that uh, because it took so long and because it was so capital intensive, that that's now blocking, I'm using that word sort of in inverted commas, other treatments yeah. being used because, you know, and maybe this picks up on your financial consideration comment that hospitals want to, you know, fully depreciate their, their robots essentially and are doing that at the expense of other treatments. I know that's a very big statement and I'm just interested in if you think there's any truth to that. Um, I think it's a difficult question to answer because mm. What you've got to have at the very front end of all this is people that want these new procedures. Mm -hmm. And it only comes with newer people coming into the specialties. Yeah, but They bring with them those new ideas. It's very easy as you get older in life not to want to learn anything new. <laughs> uh, but yet capital is a huge problem. I mean, yeah. a lot of hospitals, well, not recently, but in the very early days when people were... Uh, fundraising suddenly found that yes some big charitable donation bought them a really lovely expensive bit of equipment mm -hmm. but suddenly they've got the bill for maintenance they've got the bill for for, for, for servicing and that sort of thing so it, it's not only the capital costs it's that it's the running yeah. costs that you yeah. have to talk fair about point. Mm -hmm. fair point but you know if you can do get the same result for less time in hospital for less uh, side effects. Mm -hmm. And I think when you're costing a procedure, people don't look far enough down the line. Mm -hmm. It may well be cheaper to do something in a way, but if then two years later it's producing lots of side effects which then need treatment, yeah. those somehow should have been included in your your cost assessment. Yeah, and they're not. And it's no. um, it's 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 frustrating. You know, which, which actually leads me to a, another point, which is quite topical coming out of the pandemic. And 
And that's around, you know, something people term health inequalities, you know, and so, you know, we talked about robots and, you know, some hospitals yep. have them, some don't. So, you know, various behaviors, various decisions, various procedures are going to emanate from that. You know, the pandemic has clearly exposed uh, significant health inequalities. And this is, when I say inequality, I'm thinking geography, population groups, healthcare yep. needs. And there've been a lot of studies now that demonstrate this. Um, but, you know, what's interesting about that is that we know that there have been inequalities amongst men diagnosed with prostate cancer. And some of these are along racial lines, but I guess what I just want to focus on, because I know we could talk about this forever, is what are your thoughts on how you think like the variability of some practices that, that you've even talked about, for example, radiology reporting or yep. treatment offerings. How do you think that that is impacting some of these inequalities? I think it, it is to an extent. We all know that you need manpower to run the equipment to, to look at interpretation of results. And we, we know that there are shortages. We are increasing the number of, let's say, multiparametric MRI scans we're doing. You yeah. need somebody who's skilled, who's experienced to interpret those. Indeed. I think in the future, artificial intelligence may be one way of making things slightly easier. You can train computers to look at, and it's probably easier to train a computer to look for the normal yeah. rather than the abnormal, uh -huh. so that then uh, you can free up time of, uh, of your specialists, if you like, to look at the more abnormal ones, the uh -huh. ones that, um, but you need confidence in doing it. And that's already, you know, being done to an extent in certain things in radiology, but not, as far as I'm aware, greatly with prostate cancer at the moment. Uh -huh. Mm. I mean, we know people who are looking into this, but, you know, again, it goes back to your point about how long things take to become fully implemented. Yeah. And it takes a long while for somebody to be experienced. Yeah. You know, that there is no substitute for experience. Mm. Absolutely none at all. So I guess, you know, a final question is to really kind of bring this back full circle and to ask you, you know, as a, as a, as a doctor becoming patient advocate, and, and one that's been incredibly supportive to men through these, um, these very support groups you're involved with. What are the most common concerns of men in these support groups? The two that obviously are, are quantity of life. How long am I going to live for? Will my mm -hmm. cancer come back? Am I going to die? And quality of life. Yeah. Dealing with side effects of both the disease and the treatment. By their very nature support groups tend only to attract men with problems. Mm -hmm. By default, we've tended to talk about men with prostate problems. But prostate cancer affects everyone, particularly mm -hmm. wives, partners. So certainly as far as tackles concerned, we want to be there for everybody who's affected by the disease. And you scratch the surface and so many more factors come to light. Yeah, we talk about incontinence, sexual dysfunction, but the side effects of hormone therapy the mm. psychological and mental health issues, generalised fatigue, mm. strain on relationships, not being able to work, financial difficulties. Mm -hmm. These are all problems which patients have to deal with. And to an extent, patient advocacy groups can't cope with all those. But our job should be to realise that we can't do that mm -hmm. and then to direct people to those specialists who can help them. And because do you think there are enough of them around? I mean, do you no. think... Mm. Oh, no. Mm. I, I, you know, you can have huge numbers and it will possibly never be enough. 
it's an uh, an ongoing and um, ever evolving problem. You know, the disease of prostate cancer that was around, if you like, when I was diagnosed thirteen years ago, mm-hmm. was entirely different to the way we diagnose and manage today. And and that's not just because of the multiparametric MRI, for example. Oh no, it's a, yeah. absolutely everything: the yeah. diagnosis, the treatment. And I confidently predict, you know, we'll have this conversation again if I'm still alive in 13 years' time. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And will we be saying the same thing? 2034. It- okay, I'm going to put my marker <laughs> down. <laughs> do you think, I mean, do you think by that time, some of the things we've touched on in this conversation will have been implemented and, and have yes, an I impact? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think in 13 years' time, yes, we will have a better way of diagnosing not only prostate cancer, but the aggressiveness of it. Mm. At the moment, you know, PSA is a brilliant test and is, um, I think I'm fairly rubbish by some people. It is a good indicator of prostate health, mm-hmm. but it is not an indicator necessarily that you've got prostate cancer yeah. Yeah. and the aggressiveness of it. It's also mm-hmm. still brilliant at monitoring progress once you've been treated. Yeah, But we need something better than mm-hmm. PSA, and I do think we will have that in 13 years' time. And, and, and hopefully the, these these other, you know, sort of non-clinical issues, you know, around the, the, the sexual health, the, yeah. the urinary health will become, you know, a little bit more holistically integrated into these well, conversations. Well, let's hope, and, mm. yeah, and I hope men will have the courage mm. to talk about it. Mm-hmm. Yes, there are lots of things that we cannot change in 13 years' time. Mm-hmm. Some of the socioeconomic issues that mm-hmm. we know are, People with lower social economic status do much worse in prostate cancer. Mm. And that's a terrible thing to say, Indeed, but it, it is, is a fact. But it's a fact in not only prostate cancer, but well, in across, other areas. The board. Yeah. And similarly with, with, with um, ethnic communities. Yeah. You can't change the traditions of hundreds of years mm-hmm. in just another 13, but it will need a... Very sensitive approach. Mm. Stephen, thank you so much for speaking with me today. These it's a great pleasure. Really, really valuable. And, and I'm already coming up with um, a number of other sort of sort of subspecialty areas that I'd like to speak with you again about. So I hope our listeners will yep. um, be delighted to the next time. But um, really we covered quite a bit. And, and, you know, your insights are both personal and professional. And that's that's incredibly valuable. So thank you very much. Thank you, Claire. Thank you. Further information on diagnostics and treatment for prostate cancer is available on our website, along with a transcript of this interview and additional interviews and stories about living with prostate cancer. Please visit www.thefocaltherapyclinic.co.uk and follow us on Twitter and Facebook at The Focal Therapy Clinic. Thanks for listening. And for me, Claire Delmar, see you next time. Mm-hmm.